Who speaks for this administration on the crisis in Egypt? And have we passed a point of no return for Hosni Mubarak? Obama's pregame speech on Mubarak's postgame political situation. Only he knows what he's going to do. I'm John Hockenberry with Celeste Headley, and this is Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world for this Monday, February 7th, 2011. On this latest edition of our daily podcast from The Takeaway, our partners, The New York Times and the BBC, we'll take a deeper look at the intransigence on the streets of Cairo and in the increasingly mysterious halls of the Egyptian government. We begin with another strong statement from President Barack Obama, who spoke before the Super Bowl to Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, hoping perhaps to deliver some clarity on the situation in Egypt. On the facts, the president was clear enough. Egypt is not going to go back to what it was. The, the Egyptian people want freedom. They want free and fair elections. They want a representative government. They want a responsive government. But nearly two weeks into this turmoil in Egypt, the clarity from Washington is not matched by the faces in the crowds in Cairo. Mubarak's presence in the government is a non-starter for the hundreds and thousands whose numbers ebbed and flowed all weekend long. But the presence of protesters was constant. As of mid-afternoon in Cairo, protesters tried to form human chains to convey their solidarity. Those who were thinking that we will get tired of sitting in Tahrir Square, we tell them that we are not leaving. He has to leave Cairo. Over the weekend, President Mubarak reportedly resigned from the ruling party, and the party itself worked to find enough credible voices to run Egypt and to satisfy the demonstrators without removing Mubarak from power immediately. The protesters, they said, are a minority. Even in a democratic society, you cannot please everybody. You have to please the mainstream. We are not going to paralyze the country and have all this disastrous economic backfire just to please a marginal part of the society who will, the second day, ask for something different. That's Mohammed Abdullah. He's assistant secretary of the ruling National Democratic Party in Egypt. And the paralysis of the country he speaks of there is evident in the complaints of this Egyptian wage earner who told our partner, the BBC, that he hasn't seen a paycheck yet this month. We have a big problem now. We haven't received our salaries yet. We came yesterday and they told us the checks for our salaries from the petroleum company I work for have not arrived yet. We should have been paid on the 1st of February. So now all these people have no money. Thank God we are managing, but we have responsibilities. The checks should have arrived on the first of the month. We came yesterday and waited from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m., and we didn't get our money. And now we have been waiting since 7 a.m., and we still don't know if our checks have arrived or not. Among the opposition groups in Egypt, the U.S. role is neither clear nor apparently decisive. Nobel laureate and member of the opposition Mohamed El-Baradai told NBC News over the weekend that Egyptians don't want the U.S. to try and influence events. I think the U.S., of course, has a close tie, but they are not going to de- determine the events uh, in, 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 in the streets of Egypt. al himself claims that whatever the U.S. role is, he's not been consulted on the next political phase in this crisis. I have not been part of the negotiation. I have not been invited to take part in, in the negotiation or dialogue. There is still a huge lack of confidence between the government and the demonstrators, there's a good deal of fear that that the government will retrench and then come back with vengeance, if you like. Uh, the process is opaque. Nobody knows who is talking to whom at this stage. Uh, the process is managed 
by the outgoing regime without the involvement of uh, the new opposition, if you like, or, or the rest of the people. But President Hosni Mubarak still apparently has the respect of at least one former U.S. diplomat. Here's Frank Wisner, special envoy to Egypt, one of the last people in the U.S. government to meet with President Mubarak. He spoke on Saturday. The president must stay in office in order to steer those changes through. I therefore believe that President Mubarak's continued leadership is critical. It's his opportunity to write his own legacy. The White House later claimed that Wisner's comments were his own, and Democratic Senator John Kerry, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, responded to Wisner on NBC's Meet the Press. I think that Mr. Wisner's comments just don't reflect where the administration has been from day one, and that was not the message that he was asked to deliver or did deliver uh, there. Whatever clarity the administration wanted as this crisis enters its third week, there is uncertainty over what, if anything, the U.S. can or will do to meet the basic demand of the protesters. The President Mubarak depart immediately. And our takeaway today takes a longer view of the political dynamics in the Middle East, and particularly Egypt. Is it possible that what's going on in Egypt is not just about events in Tunisia and Tahrir Square? But it's perhaps a longer trend toward democracy, a trend in part initiated by President George W. Bush. Too often in the Middle East, politics has consisted of one leader in power and the opposition in jail. The time has come for nations across the Middle East to abandon these practices and treat their people with dignity and the respect they deserve. That's President Bush back in 2003 as he was invading Iraq and raising the pressure in the war on terror. Our takeaway today comes from Elliot Abrams, senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration. And takeaway co-host Celeste Headley and I asked Abrams about the possible link between Bush calls for democracy and what's going on in Egypt today. I do think Bush put the subject of democracy in Arab lands on the table, and that was important. But I would not draw a direct line between speeches made seven, eight years ago and what's going on in Egypt. But let's talk a little bit, because there has been a lot of discussion, uh, some of it very interesting, about what is a stir here in Egypt. And among the scenarios that I heard spun out last week and over the weekend were that uh, 2003, the invasion of Iraq, in a sense, set back the cause of democracy and that regimes were able to look at the chaos in Baghdad and say, see, this is exactly what you don't want. Uh, The other discussion that was interesting to me that I want your reaction to is that the U.S. saw what happened with Hamas winning in Gaza and basically got scared off by its own democratic rhetoric. I don't think that's right. Uh, The Bush administration pushed hardest on democracy in Egypt in 2004 and 2005 and got some results. 2005 is when Mubarak for the first time actually had a presidential election. Prior to that, he was selected by the parliament without even a fake election, you might say. Uh, but Elliot Abrams, I mean, what's the, what's the difference between what you're saying may have sponsored or, or supported freedom in the, the Middle East and, and the sort of pro-democracy support in, in uh, Nicaragua and El Salvador that you were a part of during the Ronald Reagan administration? I'm not sure what you're asking. I mean, it seems to me the United States, if you take a a look at El Salvador, for example, um, supported democracy, supported a free election, supported the government of uh, Christian Democrat Jose Napoleon Duarte, who won and was then president. And that established the basis for democracy in El Salvador that lasts to this day and under which the opposition uh, has actually won power and is now governing. I mean, that is exactly the kind of support for democracy I think we'd like to see 
I at least would like to see the United States follow everywhere. In the Arab world, the problem has been, as uh, Secretary Rice and President Bush used to put it, we traded liberty for stability. And of course, we got neither, because as we see in Tunisia and Egypt, uh, it's a false stability. It's a stability of, of um, a military dictatorship. That's Elliot Abrams, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a Deputy National Security Advisor in the George W. Bush administration. Of course, there is still a debate over whether the flowering of democracy in Latin America, Abrams referred to there, came because of or despite U.S. policy in the region. In Egypt, one institution not on the sidelines in any way right now is the Egyptian army. And here to explain what we are seeing as the army tries to control and head off the protesters is Elizabeth Bumiller, writer for our partner, The New York Times, and author of a weekend article, Egypt's Stability Hinges on a Divided Military. Elizabeth Bumiller, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what we're learning about the interior of this, at least up till now, relatively monolithic uh, institution, the Egyptian army. Um, there are elements of it that are kind of old and loyal to Mubarak. There are elements of it that are maybe less old, but more associated with the longstanding U.S.-Egyptian uh, relationship militarily. What are you seeing? Well, a lot of this has come to us through WikiLeaks, through the uh, the classified cables, because you can see in those cables, you can see there is um, a bit of a split between the, the senior generals, who are the ones who talk to the Pentagon, and a, a mid-level officer corps who um, despise the generals or certainly view them as incompetent and more focused on their loyalty to to Hosni Mubarak. Uh, On one hand, that occurs in militaries everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of mid-level officers in the in our own military who don't like the senior officers, but but it seems quite intense and it seems that this is something that the US has to consider going forward in in Egypt that that this military one which hinges the stability of the country is not entirely unified. And, you know, with any institution, you would have these kinds of cleavages. I guess the the most important question for U.S. policymakers is, where do we have the most influence? Is it at the senior level of these uh, so-called incompetent, uh, at least as far as the middle officers are concerned, uh, generals? Or would it be in the middle officer core of individuals who maybe are looking for an opportunity? Well, it would be at the top because... Defense Secretary Gates talks to his counterpart, um, Field Marshal Tantawi, who is the one who is considered incompetent by these junior officers, at least in these cables. Uh, the other person we talk to is uh, Lieutenant General Anon, who is the counterpart of Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that's where, where we have the most context. But the, it's a very proud institution. It's, it's one of the most uh, respected and uh, institutions in Egyptian life. And so uh, it, it's not going to listen to the United States telling right. it what to do. You know, there's an interesting sort of point at which last week kind of completely reset the deck as far as this relationship is concerned. It's one thing for the U.S. military to have a very confident relationship with the Egyptian army when basically the responsibilities are working together in the war on terror and holding the fort down on the uh, uh, Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. When suddenly it becomes actually shepherding the country into a fundamentally new form of government, right. how do you reevaluate all of these characters? Well, you you uh, you keep the channels open, and that's the one thing that, that the Pentagon did last week. Gates was on the phone four times with Tantawi. Uh, Mullen was on the phone twice with Anon. We don't know what they were saying. That's the big question. We don't know what they were saying, I and we don't know what Tantawi is telling Mubarak. Um, 
from this excellent reporting out of Cairo from David Kirkpatrick and Anthony Shadid, we're learning that Tantawi and Suleiman, who's also a former uh, military officer, they're all at the top former military officers, you know, are in this very tight circle around Mubarak. And if they're going to be the ones when the time comes to say uh, it's time to go in whatever way. I mean, there's talk that he would, he said he will never leave Egypt. He's an Egyptian he fought in the wars. Uh, it's in his blood. But there's talk that he could maybe go to Sharm el-Sheikh, his home in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is the you know, the resort community on the Red Sea. And they're the ones who are trying to negotiate, we're told, a, a, a dignified exit, whatever form that takes. So but, they're really important. And, of course, once they've spent that card or spent that chit of, uh, of their influence with Mubarak getting him to go, then the question is more, What's their credibility with the lower level core of uh, of military officers? Because the Egyptian military is actually a lot like the Chinese military. It's this huge sort of economy in and of itself with all mm. sorts of concessions and assets and the ability to even deliver bread to people. That's right. Well, I, the main question is what, 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 what happens to them after Mubarak leaves? How will they fare? I mean, their own survival is at stake here. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is that the military is really a parallel economy. It runs entire industries and um, electronics and clothing and agricultural production. In terms of bread, to 19, 2008, when there were food shortages in, in Egypt, the military came in under orders from Mubarak and started using its own bakeries to mm. make bread for the people. So it's popular for, for, some of the, for some of those reasons. Elizabeth Bumiller is a writer and correspondent for our partner, The New York Times. She's the author of a February 5th article called Egypt's Stability Hinges on a Divided Military. It also included reporting from Scott Shane, Eric Schmidt, and Tom Shanker from Washington, and Andrew Laren from New York. Elizabeth, thanks so much. Thank you. So the army holds the cards, but what's holding the Egyptian army together? That's the question we're going to leave you with on this latest edition of our podcast on this Monday, February 7th, 2011. We'll be following events on the next Takeaway along with the New York Times, the BBC, PRI, and our other partners. And join us right here for the next edition of Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. With Celeste Headley, I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks for joining us. And remember, we're always on at thetakeaway.org.